You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding. What's going on, everybody? This is Jeff. Welcome back to Youth Ministry Maverick. You're listening to episode 31, Sanctified Sexuality. Before we get into the description of this episode, I want to let you know that uh, these two guests that are with me for this episode will be the final guests of 2020. I do have a few more episodes as we close out 2020. However, these will be my final guests, and they are fantastic. And so is the book that they wrote, which we will be discussing. Uh, As you can guess from the title of the episode, uh, the name of the book is Sanctified Sexuality, Valuing Sex in an Oversexed World. Um, The two authors really are editors, as they did compose a few of the chapters in this book, but primarily they edited and brought together this collaboration from several experts, uh, biblical scholars, theologians, um, practical workers who deal with um, how to work out the concept of sexuality in our world as believers. Uh, Dr. Glan is a professor of media arts, worship, and pastoral ministry at Dallas Theological Seminary. She is the author or co-author of more than 25 books, including a book on sexual intimacy and marriage, which is now in its fourth edition. She's written two books on infertility and one book on contraception. Uh, She also focused her PhD studies uh, in the area of first century gender and how that plays out and the implications that can be drawn from that. Dr. Barnes is professor of biblical counseling at Dallas Seminary. He is a licensed clinical psychologist. He is board certified by the American Board of Christian Sex Therapists, a clinical member of sexual wholeness, and an ordained Anglican priest. Um, This is a concept um, that many of us uh, growing up, especially in the evangelical context, have probably had narrowed just to the idea of sexual intimacy between a married couple, and it's important for us to be able to broaden the idea of sexuality and what it means for us as being made in God's image and how it pertains to us, not just in marriage, but as men and women, whether you're single or married, and how we relate to and interact with each other and with our Creator. Uh, And with youth ministry, certainly, uh, this is something that while we joke about talking about it and we feel like we might... uh, wince and grimace when we have to talk about it with our students. It's really something, especially in this culture and this generation, that we can't talk about enough. And we need to be able to talk about it in healthy ways and give it the nuance and rich dialogue that it deserves. So let's hop into this great conversation with Dr. Glon and Dr. Barnes. Dr. Glon and Dr. Barnes, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with me today. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, we'll be talking about your new book, Sanctified Sexuality, Valuing Sex in an Oversexed World. Uh, I encourage everyone listening to purchase the book, and I hope this conversation provides some valuable insight into why you should purchase it. 
this is a great collaborative work, uh, which might be part of your answer to this first question here. Uh, there is no shortage of Christian resources on sex, and that especially goes for preteen and teenage curriculum. Uh, this is obviously a big, if not the biggest issue of this generation. So the cultural, the cultural pretext is apparent, but let's talk about the motivation. Um, so what was the need for writing this book and how is its content distinct from the other aforementioned resources Christians can find? Well, Jeff, you know, uh, Dr. Glan and I were just having a conversation one day in the faculty lounge as we were making our world observations and especially how things are going with Christian leaders in America regarding responses to sexual challenges of our day. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were just saying, man, we've got to be able to do something to help equip for better responses. Uh, So you have the initial problem that Christian leaders are dealing with, but then you have problems on top of problems in terms of responses to these problems. And so that began a conversation which led to a course, which then led to the book. And so that's kind of the short version of it. I think also for, for sure, we, we see ourselves not as being experts on each topic, but we're more curators. So we knew who we could find as, as there's been more, as you mentioned, more and more and more and more information. People wonder, how do you cut through it? And even we as educators know that I can't keep up on what's going on with gender dysphoria and with divorce and with and with any syllabus, name your issue mm-hmm. related to sexuality. But we knew who some really good experts were whether it was experts in the text, whether it was practitioners, we wanted to get out of the silo that sometimes happens in educational institutions of just focusing on text. And we also, as my colleague mentioned, we were concerned about tone and we felt like that's on us. If we're the educators, that's on us to teach people how to talk about these issues. And particularly we were coming off of the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage and we were very distressed about the way some of the conservatives had talked about their view. And so we're like, we need grace and truth. (laughs) And it seems like we're either erring on the side of truth or, you know, I mean, only on truth without grace or only grace without truth. So we were looking for people that we felt modeled grace and truth in their expertise in each of these areas. Yeah. I love that. Um, You know, I think as you both, pointed out in different ways, uh, talking about sex in church has moved from taboo to acceptable, but what's acceptable is, you know, kind of hard line on one side, either truth or grace being passive or bringing the hammer. And I think especially with teenagers, um, how that's um, a topic that seems to be joked about as far as, oh, every year we go in the winter retreat and we talk about sex, talk about dating. And, <laughs> um, you know, when I was a kid, our winter retreat was over Valentine's Day weekend. And, um, you know, it, it, one of them involved a nurse uh, showing some slides of some things. And so, like, here's what here's what could happen. Here's what here's what you could get. Uh, and so, you know, yeah. just the um, the narrow um, not helpful, no, no dialogue, right. 
uh, and being able to talk about it. And I love how the book opens up with Christopher West, because a few years ago, we went through Theology of the Body um, and being able to really look at sexuality as a key part of how God made us in his image to express um, uh, things about ourselves and how God made us, and not just in marriage, but really just in relationship with one another. Um, And the ability to distinguish between sex and gender and the importance of gender roles are both crucial parts of the current nuance taking place in public square discussions on sexuality. Um, Dr. Glon, you draw some interesting distinctions in your chapter on gender. You highlight some specific examples of Jesus voluntarily, voluntarily surrendering the characteristics of masculinity in that time by humbling himself while also pointing out the inclusion of feminine elements in God's character. Uh, You then quote some of the following in the subsequent paragraph, which is a bit lengthy here for our purpose on a podcast, but I think it's necessary to share some of it uh, for clarity of meaning. Uh, Here's the quote. Males and females do uniquely reflect God's image, but considering the above examples, it appears that seeking to establish ideals of masculinity and femininity so we can pursue them is not the best way. It appears that we become our true masculine and feminine selves being transformed into the people God intended us to be as we focus on pursuing Christ and his likeness, walking in the spirit. And sometimes our obedience may even look culturally unmanly or unfeminine, yet we must imitate Jesus, not the culture, not even the Christian subculture, end quote. Uh, can you tell us what you see being formed and taught in the Christian subculture right now regarding gender that is misleading and perhaps even dangerous? Sure. We have to begin with using the same terms. The fact that we're not all using the same terms to mean the same thing is confusing. So right. sex being biology, synonyms being male and female um, uh, and intersex, but gender being social outworking of life in the body, right? So you have a theology of the body, but the outworking of myself as a female person or uh, my brothers as males, how I act socially is gender. And we'll even have forms where people will say, what gender are you? And the synonym for that is masculine and feminine, (laughs) when we mean, because we don't want to say the S word probably. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, a lot of times we're using those terms interchangeably. So that's confusing. But when, when, uh, when I'm talking about gender, I'm talking about masculine, what's considered masculine and feminine behavior. So then the question becomes, well, the minute you start describing what is masculine or what is feminine, you're bringing in your own culture. You know, when I go to Versailles and I look at what was masculine in the 1800s, you've got high heels, lace, long flowing hair on men. Right. right. You know, wearing nylon stockings. And so that's what people mean when they say that gender is socially constructed, which sometimes Christians freak out because what we hear them saying is there's no such thing as sex, right? Mm -hmm. But what we're saying is that we, that there is nature and there's nurture, and this is the nurture side of the conversation. So with that in view, addressing some of the concerns, one concern is that Before the Reformation, the ideal woman was single, virginal, and, you know, committed to celibacy. Think of your typical nun, right? 
And when we came in with the Reformation and emptied the monasteries, we completely went the other extreme. And suddenly, being a mother becomes the ideal. So where the pecking order used to be virgin, widow, wife, it's now wife, widow, virgin. Okay. And we even come up with awful terms like spinster, right? Which, which is not filled with beauty. You know, it's something you don't want to be um, within Christendom, especially. And so the challenge to that is often when you push back against that, you're heard as saying you don't value motherhood which of course we do. It's just that that's not God's ideal. God's ideal is pursuing God. And so that means some people are going to be celibate and some people are going to be married. And Paul left that pretty open. Like he's, I prefer single, but you know, not everybody has a gift and he definitely didn't make law out of it. Right. So one of the things that Dr. Barnes and I do in our course is we ask students to go find curriculum that churches are doing on manhood and womanhood. And students come back and they say, they've taken the marriage verses and made them about men and women. They've made married people the standard (laughs) and then cast the vision for what it looks like to be a mature man or woman based on like submission and head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that can, um, that can be confusing when you're really trying to see why those distinctions are made with marriage and then with men and women. And when you conflate those, you inevitably raise one of them up on a pedestal where it shouldn't be. And in this case, as you pointed out, it's marriage, motherhood, very important things as scripture shows, right? I always tell my parents, hey, you are the primary disciple makers of your students, right? Hours wise, in six years at church, your students spend about five months with me, right? I can't disciple your kids. You need to. Being a parent is very important. But at the same time, I know several men and women in the church, uh, not just my local church, but all over who are single, who are doing great things and they need the same encouragement. They need community. They need to be shown how they're important in scripture and socially and in the realm of sexuality and being made in God's image, how they can also participate and not be a second tier member. If you think about it, it used to be to be a priest, right? You have to be single. And now it's churches don't even want to look at somebody who's single to be on their pastoral staff. And right. that needs to be corrected. That, that's just not biblical. Yeah. That was a fear of mine coming out of seminary uh, was, yeah. man, I'm, I'm dating someone, but you know, are they gonna, going to consider me? Um, luckily that dating relationship turned out to be my wife, but um, several people who've gone through that process or aren't dating, you know, I've, I've known and talked with them and they said, yeah, it pretty much came down to the fact that I'm not married. Um, Dr. Barnes, uh, as you were, in, as you're, as you're thinking about the difference between sex and gender and kind of what you're seeing in Christian subculture, what do you think maybe are some of the same or maybe some, some other things that could be dangerous and, and misleading for believers when it comes to sexuality? You know, uh, Jeff, one of the things I really love about Dr. Glan's work, and I've had the privilege of, you know, catching her with different presentations and and writings about this, and it, it's really elevated for me God's design of mystery in maleness and femaleness, because we can't really nail it down. You know, there's, there's a mystery to it. There's, 
there is a distinction because he did make male and female, but to push it to biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, that's undermining the mystery that God has in mind for it. And it, and it tends to be defining it from one person's particular cultural moment. Hmm. So uh, I, I think we need to just get back to really recapturing the mystery. There's a distinction for sure in the design, but we can't overstate it. And, and we're going to have to like embrace and work with the mystery of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that reference uh, in Ephesians, right? I'm talking about Christ and his church. And really, when we think about the church being the body of Christ and yet the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom and some of the parables he, he tells are linking to that. Um, yeah, just this relationship that we have with God, with being made in his image, yet we're fallen, yet we'll be, rec- we'll be restored one day. There's a wedding banquet but then how, you know, kind of the message of scripture to take the theology, the body approach is God wants to marry us, right? That relationship that we have with him is so important. And when we break it down in our linear understanding of you're single or you're married, but yet spiritually, the significance of marriage um, takes on a whole new approach that I think that nuance hasn't translated because we're still in these very separate terms. Everything has to be in a category and it doesn't allow for the nuance I think that's needed to get to address that very mystery that you just talked about, right? It's a mystery and that deserves dialogue instead of, well, you know, it's it's scripture and we can ask Jesus one day. Like we need to be able to talk about that because that obviously is a very important um, aspect of how we should relate to each other now and, Teenagers need to be able to need, need to be able to understand that uh, very importantly. <laughs> so, so some of that mystery, for example, would be when I ask students to make a list of what we consider masculine and what we consider feminine. Gentle ends up on the girl side. Mm-hmm. Gentle is a fruit of the spirit, so that should not be a gendered quality, right? Yeah. And so, it's those lists that that really act like we know something when we're in the realm of mystery. What? what is masculine and what is feminine? And I I think it just boils down to how I live in a female body and how a male lives in a male body ends up being masculine and feminine. And there's a huge overlap of what we're trying to avoid is essentialism. Telling a woman you can't be an airplane pilot. Telling a man you can't be a sewer until it becomes a profession and then you're a tailor and it's okay, right? It's those sorts of things that the church needs a little help on to get us out of some of our stereotypical boxes at times and, and embrace the fuller range of humanity that male and female have in the image of God. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a lesson uh, I did a few years ago with the students where I tried to highlight that with gentle being on one side or the other to try and get them to understand maybe how they're geared uh, wider. And it had to do with the student question of, why is murder wrong, but war is okay? And what I did was I broke it up, guys, girls, and I gave them a sealed envelope. I said, you have half an hour, open the envelope, use scripture, and defend the position that I've given you. 
And I gave the girls uh, the position of, hey, there's righteous anger. God uses war to advance his kingdom. And the guys had the position of, as image bearers, we should never seek to kill other image bearers. And when they came together and they had to talk about that and, and defend it, uh, at the end, I said, okay, how many of you actually stand behind the position that you had this morning before I gave it to you? And most of them, you know, didn't raise their hands. And I said, but how many of you have learned something about your own position and the other position? And every hand went up. And it was very uh, interesting to think about how they had to kind of take that stereotypical, well, I'm a man and so I'm tough and we should approach war and I'm a girl and so I should be passive, right? And had them kind of think about that. And from then on, then they had an example of not just with the issues of war and murder, which are important to talk about, but how they're geared and how they think about things outside of maybe their own stereotypes that they've adopted and said, well, you know, that's, that's me and, and I'm comfortable. Um, yeah. So it was really interesting to, while they think they're just talking about war and murder, I'm actually trying to show them that, Hey, you're geared for something much wider. And I think that kind of approach is what we need to kind of break people out of their, uh, compartments that we have them with single married, men, women only, masculine, feminine only, right? Uh, so the evangelical approach to sex within the past 30 years, uh, I think can be defined in two words, purity culture. Uh, when I was a teenager, the True Love Waits campaign, uh, seeing natural thoughts of sexual attraction as dangerous things to entertain and granting heavy doses of shame to anyone considering or engaging in premarital sex were the driving force behind our, quote, biblical perspective on sexuality. Uh, oh, and obviously sexuality was simply reduced to the act of intercourse uh, and sex, kind of like we've uh, been talking about. Um, so, Dr. Barnes, you present a great illustration in the final chapter of trying to properly maintain sanctified sexuality, the title of the book, or, in other words, sexuality as it was originally intended before the fall in the form of a slippery slope metaphor. Uh, the two extremes on the slope are to either demonize sex or deify sex with maintaining sanctified sexuality in the top middle of that slippery slope. Uh, one reason why I enjoy that illustration uh, is because I can picture so many of my own Sunday school teachers and, and youth leaders on here uh, either on one extreme or the other or trying to run back and forth between them. Uh, so can you tell us about the pre-fall and post-fall truths related to sex you mentioned in that chapter and how we can begin to hold the optimum perspective on sexuality? Yes, Jeff, thanks. I, I do as well, like the illustration, I think it just captures what we universally struggle with. And that is, how do we elevate sexuality according to the design of it? Mm -hmm. And it's really a big challenge. Um, you know, if we go back to scripture and we say biblical history, we could kind of identify as a unfolding of four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, and glorification or restoration. And if we look at what do we know from revealed truth about sexuality, I, I think in, in the pre-fall state and God's created design, uh, it's, it's such an elevated 
view of sexuality. And, and in the book, I just tried to highlight two takeaways for each of the four chapters that would be really kind of key anchor points for us. And so my, my two anchor points in the uh, pre-fall state of sexuality is that uh, sex was designed to be glorious and that also sex was designed to be greater than the individual. It, it was designed to fully capture and involve the individual, but yet at the same time to be greater than the individual. And so if you put those two things together, that is an amazing elevated view of sexuality that God uh, has in mind for us. And it was meant to be that because it was meant to fully capture us in our personal experience in time and space, and yet at the same time, to elevate us beyond our personal experience in time and space of it. And it's a pointer to an even greater and elevated truth. And it's not simply a cognitive truth. It's an experiential truth. And, and I take it that it's actually rooted in one of my favorite sayings from Christopher West about the Trinity and the perichoresis, and that is, the eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal exchange of love. And that love experience could be described as oneness that is not based in sameness. Mm. Oneness that is not based in sameness. So, in God's design, he gave us this experiential object lesson to take us beyond just a cognitive explanation to begin to grasp, even experientially, the depth of the eternal exchange of love in the Trinity in our experience, earthly experience, of oneness not based in sameness. Now, that's elevation. That's, that's really mind-boggling. And, and the only way that can happen if, if sex is actually greater than the individual. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, as I was kind of preparing for this and uh, reading through the book a little bit, uh, thinking about uh, the evangelical approach to addressing sexual issues and how it's been mainly seen as fighting against, um, you know, sexual immorality, but the way that we address it, um, you know, it's either, it's kind of back to Dr. Lon, to what you said earlier, you know, kind of hard truth, right? Um, and I think maybe the fact that we typically have narrowed it down to just sex instead of taking that full Trinitarian, you know, ongoing love, greater than the individual approach to sexuality, I think we might even see signs of that. You think about um, art, right? Uh, my wife and I were able to um, take a really awesome anniversary trip to Europe uh, s several years ago. And we got maxed out uh, on sensory just going to all the museums. But we saw so many great pieces of art and obviously um, uh, different things of art 
different kinds of art approaching it with masculinity and, and femininity. And I think maybe there's some clues in there and ideas that we can go back and look at art and say, yeah, sex is more than just um, what we think of like on a wedding night. And it's more than what we warn teenagers about on, on prom night, right? Sexuality is so much greater, should be part of who we are and part of a community. And that oneness and sameness and how some people might view that as splitting hairs, but really the importance of it goes to that pre-fall truth of it's greater than the individual. And we might think that, oh, you know, it's not going to affect me if I just casually have sex or how I regard people of the opposite sex. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of power in there. And there's a lot that I think we're kind of missing um, when it comes to communicating that and expressing how we really should engage it in a healthy way. Jeff, you used the word valuing, and we have that in our subtitle, valuing sex in an oversexed world. And on, on first gloss, you think, well, are you? how can you say we're not valuing sex? It's everywhere. Yeah. But as Gary, Dr. Barnes just described, we're not saying that kind of valuing of sex where everybody's obsessed with it. We're saying elevating it so that it is something sacred and it is something that is beautiful. And, and even when we think about how we communicate with youth, uh, well, really just communicate it is, is not that like the guidelines are there, but they need to be presented as part of the elevation rather than just a list of do's and don'ts. Because if you just think, I'm not going to do that because, you know, I might get those nasty diseases that you saw slides (laughs) of, that's not enough, right? That's not enough in the moment. What it has to be a much bigger appreciation for this is something sacred. This is something beautiful. That doesn't mean that if you save yourself for it, it's going to be rocking awesome, you know, at perfect. So there's where like some of the prosperity gospel comes mm-hmm. in at times. And that doesn't help either. It, it's just that that oneness is such a storyline for us with Christ, for husbands with wives, for the body, yeah, for the body of Christ. It's like this, there's difference and there's unity. And that is part of how we glorify God in the world is it's, it's unexpected. It's exceptional when, you know, take racism, when Christians of different nationalities and ethnicities can love each other from the heart, that's a testimony. Mm -hmm. Christian can can value sex without you know being the church lady. <laughs> I'm dating myself, but you know sex like you know everything's wrong with it. But to but to hold a higher view of it and say we are sexual beings, it, Hollywood didn't make this up. This is God's idea. He has some things to say about it. It's like a map through a landmine. You want to follow the map. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know uh, that do and don't list structure is something that growing up in a Southern Baptist church, I'm very familiar with and um, how, oh, that, that just tends to, as you said, it just kind of brings the whole ideal down where even if you follow everything on the do this list, um, what you're setting yourself up for is really a false expectation of what sexuality should be. And uh, we, we, we can't do that. We need to elevate the entire thing. You know, we need to elevate what it means. We need to expound upon sexuality and not just make it about an act or a marital relationship, but really just about the biblical framework of how we were made, how God made us, our relationship to God and one another. It's a very 
powerful thing, just like the gospel is more than a four spiritual laws tract, right? It's, it's so much wider than that. And we don't give it the nuance and we don't give it the dialogue that we should. And I know speaking as a youth worker uh, for 15 or 16 years now, uh, there's, there's an urgency when we have students in front of us to be able to communicate, here's what you need to know, here's what you need to watch out for, here's how you should live. And I understand that. But I think that's because we set up our quote unquote sex talk or whatever else as, okay, just these three or four things and that's it. Instead of taking the 9, 10, 11, or 12 things about all of that and spacing that out and being able to have an ongoing dialogue with students, with parents, students with parents, um, not just have a birds and bees talk, but really from the time they're young all the way through high school, what's it mean to be made in God's image? Uh, what's it mean to have both masculine and feminine elements made up in each of us and made up in, in who, who created us? And how we actually function all together. We need to deliver a much wider lens. We need to take off the blinders and be able to see how God's at work and how God really created us. Because otherwise, we make lists, we check off a box, we go into a department, right? You're single, you're married, and we just lose the value. We lose the glorious nature, Dr. Barnes, as you mentioned, of what sex was originally intended to be because all of that is pre-fall. So it's not just, oh, we're hyping it up because it's our selfishness and and distorting what what's good, right? It was supposed to be great and bigger than just an act before the fall. And so uh, it's much bigger than that. And I think that the diversity of contributors that you, you both have in the book, as well as the chapters that you add, hopefully really um, sets the tone for a new paradigm on how Christians should address sexuality, right? Not just gender, sex, but the whole idea of sexuality, because it's, uh, it's very important, very important. And wrapping up, um, you know, uh, is there anything about the book when people uh, step into it that you think, hey, if you're from kind of like I described, like kind of a traditional evangelical legalistic mindset on sexuality, is there anything uh, when you step into this book and, and the contents of it that um, you should be you should be aware of or kind of get ready to think about that might be a curveball for uh, um, people who are walking into it thinking that they're just reading another book and how we can teach people to wait until marriage. We laid out with with Christopher West first, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the theology of the body, and there are questions at the end of every chapter to hopefully you know set that as sort of the foundation. Mm-hmm. You can say something, Doctor B. Yeah, I I would say uh, along the same lines of what you were just explaining, Jeff. Um, step into the book with the expectation that you're going to need to expand or more nuance your understanding of what's involved in elevating sexuality. And all of us need to get so far beyond the sex act when Mm -hmm. we talk about sacred sexuality. And uh, we're, we're not saying that's not a part of it, but for instance, we are missing most of our sexual experience of social sexuality 
if we're only talking about intercourse. Mm -hmm. And we're also giving an implied message that being single and being celibate means you don't participate in sacred sexuality. And that is so wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, whether it's in your youth ministry or whether it's in the full ministry of the church, um, we are really limiting how we can elevate sexuality if we're only thinking in terms of sexual intercourse. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think um, one really good element of uh, Generation Z is that they are certainly more open and inquisitive on the status quo. And they want to know why. They want to know what's behind this party line answer, right? Um, And I love that because, uh, you know, as I have been taught by mentors and growing up and, and doing ministry, you know, I've, I've come to realize that better questions are oftentimes way more valuable than just simple answers. And, uh, and I left seminary with 10,000 more questions than I had entering it. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, um, you know, I, I try and teach students when they come in to be uncomfortable, uh, to really, uh, you know, if they give me a, a, an answer and I say, are you sure about that? Or, okay, you know, and they're waiting for affirmation. And by now, everyone kind of knows that's what uh, is going to happen. And so uh, taking elements uh, of how we were made, namely in this case, sexuality, and talking about that, I think helps them understand because when they talk to their parents about this, about you know, Dr. Glon, you mentioned gender dysphoria and some other things that maybe some people listening really have no idea what that is, what the terms are, why people put, uh, you know, she slash her and like, what does all that mean? You know, um, why does Facebook have, this is several years ago now, but I think they had up to 53 different gender expressions that you, that you could choose. Right. Like, what like what is happening and why um, is it happening this way? Is it all just a distortion or some of it really important to distinguish? Um, and so I think it is really important for us to be able to elevate it. And I think reading this book will provide that. And we don't answer all those questions, but we at least alert readers to who the experts are for if they need to go get more information. Yeah. For example, Mark Yarhouse only could do one chapter on gender dysphoria, but he's got a whole corpus of work mm-hmm. um, that is worth definitely worth looking at. So one of our reviewers described this work as like being a bunch of TED Talks. <laughs> you don't have to read it from front from cover to cover. You can pick it up and grab the topic that you know is most relevant or short, you know whatever you're concerned with for the day. Um, but but hopefully we provide a resource for parents and for ministers, for scholars that will help them have a sense of a good bibliography and some good questions to ask and some experts to go to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you both for this great discussion. I'm glad you could join me. Before we uh, wrap up, uh, could you tell us uh, where and how people can get this book and where they can follow you both and your ongoing work online? I'll go first. The book is Sanctified Sexuality, Valuing Sex in an Oversexed World by Kriegel Academic. You should be able to get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, 
I also sell through my website, which is where you can contact me, which is aspire2.com, A-S-P-I-R-E, the number two.com. Awesome. Dr. Barnes, yeah, uh, is there a place people can follow you uh, online and your work? So um, I guess the best answer to that is no. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I don't really have that, but uh, you're welcome to contact me at any time with my email, gbarnes at dts.edu. Mm-hmm. Yes, and if you go search DTS's website, I'm sure you will find some things from Dr. Barnes, either publications he's written or chapel talks or anything like that. And I will have uh, those links to the website, uh, to your doc- your website, Dr. Glon, and obviously to where you can buy the book in the show notes. So you can find that pretty easily. Uh, Thanks for having Yes, thank you so much. I'll be praying for you both as you continue to help people in ministry trailblaze uh, this paradigm shift of elevating sanctified sexuality. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. That concludes today's episode. Thanks again to Dr. Glon and Dr. Barnes for joining me. Uh, The links for websites and other things that we mentioned here at the end are included in the show notes. I encourage you to like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it and to please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help other people see us so that we might benefit them and their ministry. Uh, I encourage you to share this episode with anyone in ministry and anyone that you know who is looking for a more robust, um, out-of-the-box perhaps initially, but really a healthy way for us to be able to discuss what it means to um, live out our sexuality as being made in the image of God. Uh, you can check out youthministrymaverick.com. You, there you can find all of our episodes, a list of our guests with their bios, uh, some merchandise, and links to organizations that can help you with your ministry. As I mentioned, uh, these were the final guests of this year, but we have a few more episodes coming up, so don't miss those. And until then, thanks for listening. Adios. Adios.